Welcome, everybody, to the Robert John and the Wreck podcast. We are a five-piece rock and roll band from Orange County, California that travels the world eating local foods, drinking local drinks, and melting faces. I'm Steve. I'm Warren. I'm Robert. I'm Andrew. And I'm Henry. And this is episode number 115, I think. <laughs> You're the one who knows this. Or it's, I don't is this know. this the 115th one? <laughs> it sounds good. It's a, it sounds like a great number. It is. It is the 115th uh, episode. That's nuts. Wow. It just keeps every week. We get we get more and more. It's crazy how that works. The higher numbers. (laughs) Just one a week. Just one. Yeah. Nice. Persistence pays off. Absolutely. Speaking of persistence, War, how was how was your weekend? (laughs) Well, we had one of those weekends where we were all together. So I guess I'll start my version of the story and let you guys finish your versions. <laughs> how, how did this come out? Are yeah, we that probably, jaded at this point? Yeah. Where it's like, I know exactly how this is going to go. Um, no, this weekend was great because we got to play music. Um, and not only that, we got to play music with our friends and uh, in two very awesome cities, one being Los Angeles and one being San Diego, specifically Ocean Beach. Um, Friday night, we got to play at the Mint with Angela Petrelli and the Players, Radiator King and the Holly Burnt Band. And uh, that was a super fun show. It was good seeing Angela. She's been on the podcast, I think, more than anybody. I think she's three times, maybe four, definitely three at least. Um, so it was cool. I actually haven't met her in person. So it was funny <laughs> seeing her in person being like, oh, I've talked to you for probably like almost 10 hours over the computer on podcasts, but I've never met you before. So it was good to meet her and um, her band was killing. And uh, yeah, that was a great night. And then we played in San Diego in Ocean Beach with our friends Porcelain Hill at Winston's. And that was also a good time. It was a family affair. There was a lot of um, family of the band in the room and friends. And uh, it was a, another good time. And it just felt good to wake up on Sunday and kind of feel sore from moving around on stage and just feel like, oh, like I did, I did what I was supposed to do this weekend, which was play music Friday and Saturday. So, uh, you know, you can kind of get up a little slower on Sunday and, and, you know, not feel like you're completely worthless. And so, go straight to um, rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then we went to rehearsal and we did some writing and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was a busy weekend playing music. And again, uh, I like it. It feels good. It feels like I have purpose again in life. So um, I am very thrilled. And again, it's nice to see friends and play at cool spots. Um, how did you enjoy this weekend, Robert? Um. It was great. Um, we, I don't think we've played in LA for years. I think, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like the last time we played in LA was at the mint like five years ago. Um, but we probably did something somewhere. Um, so it was great to be back at the mint. I love that room. Um, and, uh, it was a, it was a good fun night. had a great time. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a little later than I'm have been used to, um, in the past few months, but, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. And, uh, yeah, San Diego, the Winston's. Uh, Winston's is always great. Feels good. Porcelain Hill guys killed it. Um, I think I said it way too many times on the mic, but I was just watched the whole set and thought they, like, brought their A game. And it was great to be there with uh, friends and family. And my wife was there, which might be her last concert before uh, a little thing pops out of her. So it was fun to have her there. And, um <laughs> That's how I talk about, you know. I feel like it's worse children. that you don't know the gender because it just makes you talk about it like yeah. it's some kind of animal or something. Yeah, it's like a little <laughs> alien or something. Um, and then that's the reason why I didn't say him or her because we don't know what it is yet. So if you're wondering, um, I will be calling it by what it is when it when we know what it is. <laughs> but yeah, so it, that was a good night. And uh, we uh, had a rehearsal on Sunday too, so. It was like three days of music, and um, we uh getting some some new stuff together for everyone's ear holes, and we're excited about it. And um, yeah, and now we're here today. So, Andrew, how was your weekend? Just because Warren thinks he knows how it's going to go, I'm going to talk about the parts of my <laughs> weekend that I didn't talk to anyone else about. 
And thank you, Wilbert. Uh, he said, congrats to Andrew, chained forever. <laughs> Which is a comment on me getting engaged. Thank you so much. Uh, me and Warren are planning weddings right now, and it's a huge pain in the ass. So getting engaged oh, yeah. was the fun part. Planning a wedding is not very fun. Um, but, yeah, it's been great. Um, I I was... Uh, so uh, I drove myself to San Diego and... LA and I was listening to two Joe Rogan podcasts that sort of blew my mind and were ridiculous. One of them is a guy named Randall Carlson, who's a geologist who basically talks about, and this is going to like be incredibly, you know, uh, different than anyone's heard as far as human history, but that the oldest human like us goes back to something like 170,000 years ago. So this is a human like us, big brain human, and we kind of assume that everything starts around ancient Egypt 10,000 years ago or so, but that's not true. They found, like, really, really old remains of humans, and that there's all these crazy geological changes that happen really fast and basically, like, wipe out whole, like, races of humans. Not races, that's not the right word, but a whole uh, communities Species. of humans like us. Mm. Um it's not species because they're all the same kind of human. That's why I want to use oh, that word cool. carefully. So, like, nice. think of, like, cities. They'll wipe out whole cities that have been there for, like, 500 years. There was a uh, farming community on Greenland, and then the, you know, something shifts on the earth, and then that whole thing just freezes over, and that whole community that's been there for 500 years just all dies out. So there's all these crazy, like... Uh, geological shifts and things happening over these extremely long periods of time that sort of say things like, oh, we could have had a whole advanced civilization that could have had space travel and all these sort of things, and uh, they could have all died out already, and then the Earth could have just reclaimed all the materials they used to do everything, and we would mm. have no idea about it. <laughs> And so there's that guy, and then another guy named Graham Hancock who talks about the, uh, like, um, more of the cultural, archaeological aspects of it. So that guy's a geologist. He talks about those things from a, like, rock formation standpoint. And Graham Hancock uh, talks about stuff from a what-we-find-in-the-ground standpoint and how we sort of have this weird dogma with archaeology that we just assumed something was right and that if you ever questioned that, then people would pull your funding and stuff like that. And so it got really, uh, and, uh, so I was talking about how there's like pieces of the Amazon that we barely discovered that we're discovering all these things where all these civilizations are incredibly old and older than we ever thought they were doing crazy things like building pyramids and stuff like that. Anyways, that's how I spent my drive <laughs> to play these fun shows. And it was, a. Uh, it's very mind-opening to think about that, oh my god, like, huge civilizations of humans could have lived entire, basically, like, you know, lifetimes, and then we could have known nothing about it. Or we're not looking in the right places to find it or something. It's very cool. I totally recommend those podcasts. It's not for the faint of heart if you really want to hold on to the history of the world that you think <laughs> is true. Um, Henry, how was your weekend? Uh, it was very uh, fun. We did a lot of playing of music. Um, if you didn't catch it already, I also was at these shows this weekend on Friday and <laughs> Saturday. But on uh, Thursday, I actually did something a little different. Um, I actually played as a uh, guitar player uh, for this artist, Shiva Elliott, uh, up in L.A. at the Moroccan Lounge. He was in downtown, and uh, I actually hung out with Andrew at his place. Um, the load in at that place is, is early. So I drove up 20 minutes to Pasadena as opposed to driving all the way back to orange County and, um, hung out, ate some Mexican food and then went back and played the show and ran into Andrew there. And, um, even saw our buddy Dan Sharon from Balto, uh, at the show, which was very cool. And, um, nice. Just kind of interesting, you know, getting to play, um, a different batch of original material uh, from somebody else and learning new material. I haven't, haven't learned like entire songs and parts like that um, for another artist uh, in a while. Um, so it was interesting kind of learning a whole set over the course of basically two weeks and then 
kind of coming in and throwing caution to the wind and um, seeing what happened. And I think it went well. And um, we played with this other band, Joshua and the Holy Rollers, which I thought were great. Um, really cool guys as well. And um, Andrew and I went and hung out with them at this place in Hollywood called, I think it was called Desert Five Spot afterwards and kind of just got to know some of the people a little bit, um, which was, which was fun. It was an interesting uh, evening, definitely. And then obviously we did, you know, the rest of our stuff this weekend and um, lots of rehearsing with both this band and my solo project, King Tree and the Earth Mothers, which was uh, really fun. Just lots of music, um, which was great. Um, just something, you know, fun and exciting and uh, expressive to sort of get the wheels turning and do my thing and uh, really, really enjoyed it. Um, how about you, Steve? Uh, yeah, other than our shows, which were fun. Um, I Thursday night, I also had a show in L.A. I played at uh, Silver Lake Lounge in uh, Silver Lake. And it was it was fun. It was the first trio show that I had done in a venue that wasn't like a charity event. Um, I, I was doing those uh, Sweet Relief Sundays at the Wayfair uh, back in May and June. And this was the first time that I was just like on a bill in a venue um, with the trio. And the guys I played with, I'd never played with before, uh, but it was really fun. I had uh, Dusty Schaller and John Philbrick. Um, John's the artist that I've been working with the last couple of years on his records. And so it was, it was fun to actually get to work with them live instead of just in studio. And Dusty uh, was one of the co-producers of Philbrick's record and uh, has been a good buddy for a long time. And this was my first time actually playing drums, or pl playing with him on drums um, live in front of people. And it was fun. We had like 30 people out at Silver Lake Lounge and uh, it was a small but mighty crowd and got to play my own tunes for the first time in over a month and stretch out. And we, uh, I, <laughs> my formula for the trio is I, I don't like people to rehearse or know the songs too well. Um, obviously Henry's, you know, been playing with me for a long time. So he's, he's gotten to know them over the, over the course of the, the, the thing. And he absolutely shreds it. Um, there, there's something about, uh, just putting on your ears and making music actively in the room with, with people that, that I, that I really dig. And, um, yeah, so that was, that was fun. And saw some people that I haven't seen in a long time. And the, the, uh, the other folks on the bill, Ryan Hahn and the believers, um, they're there at Silver Lake Lounge like every Thursday night, and they're great. Um, and then uh, Sam Marine, who I'd never heard before, opened up the show, and he's a really talented songwriter and a lot of fun. So, And then uh, the rest of the weekend was pretty much uh, studio time during the day. I was up at Warren Hewitt's uh, Spitfire Studio working on a bunch of Produce Like a Pro stuff, and Warren and I wrote another tune together and then uh, tracked that for a microphone demo. And then, uh, and then I hung out with you guys and made sweet, sweet music with you guys. So it was, it was a good weekend. I was exhausted when I got home uh, Sunday <laughs> after our rehearsal. I drove back up here to uh, the Bay Area and hit a little bit of traffic. So it was, it was a good, uh, good seven and a half hour drive. Um, <laughs> but Dang. it was fun. Got to have dinner with the family and then just worked on music all day yesterday for uh, Patreon stuff. Shameless plug. Um, still doing new music every Friday. So, um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's been good. Cheers. What time, what time did you end up getting home on Sunday after, uh, after our rehearsal? Like 11 o'clock wow. at night. So it was good. I like the, the, the drive's easy. Like I've, I've been doing, the Orange County to uh, Santa Clara County <laughs> drive, uh, you know, since since I left for college back a million years ago. Um, so it's 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 fun. I, I actually stopped at uh, Lost Hills. It's not not quite halfway, but um, it's halfway if you hit traffic in LA time wise. Um, so it was it was good to just stop. I got some Arby's and you know a little nostalgia sipping on those Jamocha shakes that I've been drinking for, you know, 20 years. And that's the <laughs> literally the only place that I'll get a Jamocha shake is at that Arby's at Lost Hills. It's, it's weird. It's like, a, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, it's super weird that they're like the only, like they just, 
claimed the mocha shake out of all, you know, like how yeah. Jack in the Box kind of claimed the Oreos, cookies, and cream shake. Like oh, when yeah. you think of that, it's like you a don't Jack get an Oreo cookie thing. shake from anywhere else. Like yeah, it's, yeah. It's just not, but not as good. Yeah, the Jamocha almond shake is the, the classic Arby's <laughs> dessert. Cornered the market for. <laughs> That's funny. It's like, Robert, you're muted. You looked very uh, convincing, though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, over. Time, the, the, the moment's over. Yeah, but it was good, and I had a, uh, I had a. They, they used to call it a big Montana. Um, now I don't know what they call it, but it was something, something nice about like being able to like walk into Arby's and be like, "Yo, let me get a big Montana and a medium Chamoka shake <laughs> and curly fries. I want my fries curly, you know." And now it's like, let me get a number one medium with curly fries and a Chamoka shake. <laughs> But it was good. And you know what goes great with Jamoka shakes? Especially when you're driving. What is it? What could it possibly be, Steve? I'm, Listening I'm, to music. Oh. Wow. You know, Ecstasy? it's crazy that you, it's crazy. That, well, that's, that's, yeah. that's a different conversation. That's for later. Right, guys? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, that's for the double secret podcast. <laughs> double the double secret podcast. There's the single secret <laughs> podcast, and there's the double secret podcast. Um, well, I usually have been trying to kind of take a historical spin, but I recently discovered that, uh, in spite of my knowledge, this song actually exists on uh, streaming, and I didn't think it did because the album it's originally from is not on there. Um, but anyways, today I want to talk about Brian Auger. Uh, he is a an English jazz rock and rock music keyboard player who specializes in playing the Hammond organ. And um, the reason I heard about him is uh, he was supposedly the first person. Uh, so, so back in 1966, Jimi Hendrix uh, crossed the pond, let's say, for the first time. Um, he was taken over to England and introduced to the sort of music scene in London and the first person supposedly that he jammed with was Brian Auger's band. Um, I believe it was, I believe at the time it was Brian Auger's Trinity, but I'm not sure. Um, and he also played on multiple sessions, uh, Brian Auger, I mean, um, for various British acts. Um, he formed a group called Brian Auger's Oblivion Express in 1970, which is where this track today originates from. There's an album called Closer to It uh, that this song begins, and uh, there's no edit. So, uh, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a longer one than what we're used to here, but I think it's totally worth it. Um, it's a really, really great song, and obviously features uh, the tremendous talents of Brian Auger on his B3 and his seemingly ever revolving but amazingly talented band uh, at sort of is uh, ubiquitous when you associate with Brian Auger and uh, everyone he plays with. And uh, this song is called Whenever You're Ready. It's originally on a record called Closer To It that came out in 1973. And uh, it's a great song. And in just a few moments here.
That was super cool. Yes. <laughs> no, it almost reminds me of a... Uh, this is like a weird reference, but uh, Radiohead has an album called King of Limbs that's very... Oh, like, yeah. It's mm-hmm. percussion-based a lot, and there's a lot going on in the drums, and because I'm a drummer, there's like tons of syncopation going on. But what that ends up doing is it just sets this bass where you sort of aren't paying attention to all that rhythm going on anymore and it's just like a cool canvas to sort of paint on top of for that uh, you know the b3 yeah uh the whole record um which i was holding up uh i had to get a copy of this um because it came in when i was working for parker macy at cream tangerine records um our buddy over in coast mesa um he got a copy of this from a seller, one of his one of his contacts that has a bunch of used vinyl, and um, he told me to put it on, and I tried putting it on, and I was just like, "This is unbelievable." And then I sat on it, and was like, "Maybe I should buy it. Maybe I should." And then literally three hours later, some guy came by and bought it, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll have to get another copy of it." Um, and uh, let's see. Brian Auger, Barry Dean on bass guitar, Jack Mills on lead guitar, Lennox Langton on congas, and Godfrey Godfrey McLean on drums and cowbell. Um, it's got this really cool train on the cover. Brian Auger's Oblivion Express, um, and basically the whole record is is kind of that sort of idea, uh, that sort of sonic concept. Basically, um, different grooves here and there, uh, but a lot of people say this this is possibly his best and or most cohesive record um i certainly think it's one of his best uh, i really enjoy it and i highly recommend it um unfortunately this album itself you can't really find on streaming platforms but there are a few songs from this record that are available on some of the brian auger compilations that are out there um so pretty much i think your only option if you want this specific record is to either get it on vinyl or cd or watch it on youtube i guess um but as far as the album itself, it's uh, I could not find it on streaming platforms. But yeah, usually fun. at the end of the day, there's some guy who just like puts his phone up to the vinyl player and then yeah. <laughs> records it on his phone and then yeah. posts it on YouTube. Yeah, music finds a way to YouTube somehow. Oh yeah, absolutely. Music finds a way. Uh, I but it, well, I just but a, I, I just bought it on Discogs because I. Have to go <laughs> You'll you'll love it, man. It's, you can get it's it for really cool. bucks on Discogs. <laughs> yep, that's about how much I got it for. Um, and I I have it on constant rotation. I probably listen to it at least once every two weeks. Um, it's just great, great music to have on around the house when you're doing stuff or whatever, or just chilling. Yeah, that was great. Well, the thing we haven't quite done with us yet, and our. Uh, newest record is i feel like we haven't talked about any of the tracks or we haven't done like a play-by-play yet so i think we should do that maybe like one song at a time instead of doing it all at once and then maybe we'll compile that or something for the uh the um the digital download pack that we usually come out with which we will talk about uh, eventually, and that will eventually, we'll do a re-up for the digital download pack. I don't know if any of our fans listening know what we're talking about. You can download all of our <laughs> whole discography right now up until Shine a Light. No, not up until Shine a Light, up until Last Light on the Highway. Uh, I think for like one price, and it's all digital, but it's all the records and literally all the B-sides we have um, with a bunch of commentary per every record. And so... We have not done that yet for Shine a Light, but um, that's what we're going to start today. So the first track on Shine a Light, and Henry, do you want to pull this up really quick? Can you pull up Shine a Light? And Steve, sorry if you had to edit around this because I didn't tell anyone what we're doing. No, that's fine. <laughs> uh, Give me a second here. Henry, you can't read my mind? No, but I feel like everyone liked this better than something like liner notes where we tried to talk about it or something like that and we haven't really talked about this record yet and sort of the stuff we've gone through or who wrote what because everyone knows who's listened to any of that commentary stuff that we're all over the map with this stuff and depending on what day or what record you know someone gets a song that goes through and so let's play this song really quick. This is just the first track off our newest record, Shine a Light on Me, Brother. And then we're going to talk about 
what went into it and all the writing process and all the fun stuff that you want to know. listen to our records obviously so just listen to that again i'm like man that came out really good and there's like a lot of solid stuff on there that i really like um i will start by saying i think this is probably the oldest song on this record that we had we had probably been writing this in the last light on the highway phase i think we had some kind of idea of what this was um, at least that first riff or something. Is that true? Or like, I just remember this being the first song. It, I don't know if it was finished first, but I remember it was one of the first the, ideas we were throwing around. It started with the chorus because Steve brought in the just that that line, mm-hmm. just the "Shine a Light on Me, Brother" line, and then we were playing around with it. And I remember that we, I really liked that line the minute that Steve played it, and I could we like we could I could already hear like the gospel 
influences just with that one line, you know, and then, um, but yeah, we definitely didn't like write it on the spot, you know, it wasn't like we took some time with it, um, from what I remember, but. And this one, from what I remember, took like a bunch of days of arrangement, um, in the rehearsal room and we might not like work on, I feel like, um, we try to make sure that everything stays like energetic and fun because if you lose something in the weeds, you might just end up scrapping the whole song. So I think we knew we liked this song. We knew we liked it and we wanted to go with it, but we just weren't sure how it all fit together. And it's really easy for this stuff. Even if you have like a good initial idea, you're like, cool, there, there's the gem, right? Now, how do we work backwards from there to get a song that doesn't sound like every other song like this? And that's hard. (laughs) Mm. That takes all this massaging and effort and, just little stuff in this song that you don't think about probably took us like a half hour per each, like little, you know, deciding what kind of hit to get out of this section with or deciding how that bridge section should go or something. We know we want to build or something, but how it's just, so I, the arrangement of this took a really long time, um, like longer than most songs that just sort of come out. Um, I, I'll talk about the drums first and where I'm coming from in this world for any drum nerds out there. So for this record in particular, I used all of our engineer Jeff's drums, who's also like a phenomenal drummer. He has this uh, crazy custom DW kit in all these sizes, but I just used the rock and roll sizes. And then uh, I used all of his cymbals too. And I think my idea for this whole record was I've made a lot of fuss about gear in the past that made little to no difference so my idea for this entire record was i was just going to use all of jeff's drums and just use all the same drums and then the record was going to sound correct because of my playing and not because of the gear and that was my main focus i think i changed out a ride symbol for hurricane and that's it uh and then i put some tape on the drums for desert sun to get like that other sound the rest is just how i'm hitting stuff and how it was mixed and so that is that was a whole different concept than i feel like other records we would like swap out snares or do different things or try to get like drastically different sounds this was like one kit one snare drum very small changes uh on this in particular i my I'm always leaning somewhere in between being John Bonham, wanting to be John Bonham and wanting to be Levon. And so that first groove is something I thought of more of like a band groove where, you know, it doesn't do the same thing when you're not playing it at his volumes. But that that to me in the beginning is something that's more of like a Levon, the halftime sort of groove. And then as it gets into the next thing, it's very like, whatever, Blues Brothers or Credence or those sorts of things. There's only one thing you can really play to, like, a gospel sort of section, and I just wanted to make sure it had that, like, fun punk rock energy that we have on top of, you know, the the rootsy sort of sounds and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, and, okay, so for vocals, um, I remember wanting that the woos in there from the beginning and just going like this is 100% a Beatles e sort of thing and trying to fight Steve on those woos. <laughs> Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Steve is not a fan of the woos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably still not a fan of the woos. Yeah, that's fine. I I I like them now. They're fun. You were right. Um <laughs> No, but uh I just thought that was a funny thing because I feel like it's so characteristic of the song and people go like, oh, yeah, like, you know, of course those need to be there, but Mm -hmm. there was a good chance that those weren't there. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, little decisions like that get to be made. Um, Let's talk about the recording vocals process. So, like, Robert, you want to handle some of that stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, this this was the the first record that we didn't do vocals in a studio, uh, like a real studio, like you walk in the door and it's a studio. Um, because, well, I guess you have a lot to say about this too, because, um, uh, we did, I mean, Andrew picked up some stuff to, we basically did it, uh, on our own. Um, and, uh, Andrew can talk about, and Steve can talk about like what we used because I couldn't tell you because they're the masterminds behind that. But, you know, we, we did, we did vocal tracking in, in Warren's, uh, 
old place that he was living in a bedroom. You know, we we did it at a rehearsal spot. Um, you know, we kind of just did it where we could figure out where the timing would work out. And uh, it, it it almost made it even more comfortable. Like, one, it, we had to figure out, you know, what we needed to use, you know, like the, the proper um, preamp and mic and, and, and how we set up in the room. And But once we got that down, it was pro- pretty much a, a streamlined process. We knew exactly what we needed to do um, to start the recording. And then, um, you know, we didn't have those time constraints of, the only time constraint we had was not to over push ourselves. You know, it wasn't like, Oh, we only have the studio for three hours. We got to fit all this in, in one time, mm. you know? So it was a lot more relaxed and, and uh, a lot more just, just genuinely able to just try things out and, and push things forward. Um, and I know that, that it was a lot of it was just with a- Andrew engineering and me in the other room and, and trying stuff out. I mean, the, the the biggest one for me for this track was is is the you know the goddamn at the end of this track you know um which i think is is perfect for what this track is and what it needs and and it's just a small subtle thing but in the room you know when andrew's like try try something like that you know and your mind goes what why would i say that right there but then on the track it's like brings everything together because of the the energy of it all um which is just uh part of the part of the relaxation and part of the 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 vibe that we had recording the vocals for this and you can you can tell them how we did that um from all the stuff that you got yeah we just got a basic recording rig of like a general whatever if you want to ask more about specifics (laughs) i I think it's just more important to how we you know it was a little more pieced together and um the reason was because hybrid the studio we usually tracked at closed down correct yep and so yeah we had everything dialed in we knew everything we like to use there and i sort of tried to copy that chain as best i could on something i i liked is whatever what we could you know uh realistically afford because i think that mic is like 10 grand or something like that so whatever the copy of that mic is and stuff like that and uh yeah, it's, I don't think anyone can tell the difference between if you went like, does the vocal sound better on this track or this track? It's just sort of how it makes people feel sometimes. So uh, what we did discover, too, in doing a bunch of shootouts is that Steve Steve uses a rig that is like the most bare-bones rig you would ever think, and he uses it on Stream tons of line. records that you've heard. And the most surprising thing is that I had just spent a bunch of money on this huge chain that I was very proud of, and then we were shooting out stuff to see if I could tell the difference or not, and it was incredibly close, right? Uh, you could probably yeah. talk about your chain more, you know. Yeah, my my chain's just I, I'm very much a function over anything type of a guy, and and uh, I travel a lot and I, I work on the road now more than than ever which is which is great so i just have an an sm7b microphone which is your standard you know kind of radio mic i guess or uh but it's it's a great microphone i i normally just go handheld with it when i'm in studio i don't even put it on a stand and uh put that through a little cloud lifter for some uh signal boost and then just straight into a, like a two-channel Mike Pre, that's 150 bucks, and then uh, I I use the uh, Slate Digital plugins. Everything bundles like 14.99 a month, um, and that has emulations of you know all this expensive rack hardware and and outboard gear and stuff, uh, and I I just love it. And it sounded really it, it good. I was great. really impressed by it, and I think it's most of the backgrounds are recorded with that chain. Yeah, yeah. Hen- Henry and I did our backgrounds just in my home studio and in, in, in my room and uh yeah it's just set up and we knocked we knocked stuff out super quick with that rig it's just you don't have to go through and with backgrounds too like i i don't like gaining up different sections i like the backgrounds to be almost like performed you know um mm. so once the level's set at a good spot i don't change it for the entire entire time you know it's like just get right up on that microphone and just Sing, sing your heart out, and and uh, if it if it peaks, obviously you know turn it down. But um, give have a little bit of headroom there to uh, to get louder and stuff. And I think we knocked out most of the tunes in what a couple of hours, Henry. Yes, it was yeah. a very very quick process. Yeah, 
And then, Andrew, you did all of your backgrounds on your rig, right? Yeah, I did it on my rig at home. And that yeah. was actually super comfortable, too, to go. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go here to do this thing. I could just do it in my own time. And it was like, it's good for me to become a better singer, too, because I could just hear if I was making mistakes and just go, oh, let me do it again or something. Yeah. Um, and I already had their vocals as a guide, so if I was out, I was really out because those were already, you know, set in stone and already sounded good. Um, cool. We were getting questions like, do we write lyrics or the music first? We, 99% of the time, either someone's brought a song in that has some kind of idea lyrics to it, and we work backwards from there, meaning like it's a verse and a chorus and we need the whole rest of the song. Mm-hmm. Or I would say we're jamming on something, come up with an idea, and then we need to work backwards from there and fill out lyrics for everything. And it's one of those two ways. For yeah, this I mean, song, every, go ahead. For, for this song specifically, I was driving back from the Bay Area. <laughs> um, and I, I do a lot of my writing in the car without a keyboard. Like, I'll be listening to whatever music on, you know, put my phone on shuffle or whatever and be listening to some song and you get a little bit inspired and then I'll just start a voice memo and I'm tapping on the steering wheel and just singing something. I think when I pitched this song to you guys, it was like the first time that I had actually played it on piano too. Because I had just come up with the idea like on the drive-in for the writing session and stuff, so... It's pretty fun. I think driving is where I get a lot of my musical ideas, too. People, like, uh, dismay the traffic in L.A., but I feel like some of the best ideas come in the traffic. Because you're not not just sitting there by yourself alone in a room. You're sort of doing something, and so your brain's a little occupied, and you're probably listening to music anyway. So you go, like, oh, that might be cool. Yeah. And then, you know, you just, like, sing it into a recorder or something and then work it out later, you know. And then did you guys... How did you guys finish this song? Did you guys finish it together? Well, we, 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 the part of the writing process is we had this chorus. Um, and so you could feel the vibe of the song from the chorus, right? You know, you can feel the, the gospel meets southern rock meets upbeat, powerful, just party. Um, and that was before the horns and, and the, the chicks came in for the backgrounds, like before it, it created the song. And I think we were trying to figure out what the, those verses were going to be. And I, don't, I have the worst memory, I think, out of anyone. But what I remember is when we when we figured out that that verse, um, like the that the halftime thing, um, is really when the the whole thing came together, um, at least in my head. So I and I don't remember how it happened, <laughs> um, it, but it probably happened how we usually do it, where uh, you know we're in the, we're in the room and we're, we're I'm trying to sing stuff and melodies and, and see what comes out and. Then you go back to the drawing board and write down some ideas and then, you know, kind of fine tune from there um, in, in, you know, helping things make a little bit more sense or, or how you're trying to portray it. Um, now I totally forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Um, so uh, the next section is basically that... Uh, we had a tough time with his chorus for a while. And in the room, I remember arranging it, and it was almost just the same chord for the whole chorus. And it took a while in arranging to get to the point where, like, how do we... It's a good chorus, it's a good thing, but how do we, like, make a flip? And that four chord that comes in, like, three quarters of the way through, didn't happen until later in the process. So we didn't even get there. And that's like sort of the magic of arranging and stuff. And we're not setting lyrics or ideas until it feels right. And then we sort of set everything in stone. So I remember that needing to come together too, like adding more to the chorus to make it more, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I call it less boring. More entertaining is probably the way to say it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so let's talk about a little more studio stuff. So we live tracked this at Jeff Frickman's house like we did last night on the highway. And then we went to overdub the solo. So it was our same kitchen setup where I'm in the kitchen, Warren's in the kitchen, Steve's in the kitchen, right? Robert is in one of the bedrooms singing and playing guitar. And then Henry is in another one of the bedrooms playing guitar. And we can all hear each other. So that's how we're all live tracking this record, which is always a ton of fun. And, you know, I don't think we do these 
more than a couple takes. Like, there's no more than, like, five takes of any one song on this record. That, that was and, probably, like, the, the most takes out of any songs on, like, some, some we did three times, you know? Every day, I think we took the first take or something. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on like that. Uh, and then we got to, like, the guitar solo section. So, Henry, do you want to talk about your process in the guitar solo? And I remember being there with you doing solo stuff for this, and you just murdered that solo. That slide solo is killer in this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think this one um, was interesting because uh, we had tried this a lot of different ways, and um, this this is not what I pictured to be a song that I would write in the tuning I wound up going with. Um, I basically fluctuate between standard and open E tuning. And this was one of the few songs on this record uh, that I utilized that. Um, and it just felt better to sort of have those chords there. And it worked better, obviously, as a slide song um, to have those open intervals that the open E chord tuning gives you. Um, but the interesting thing about recording this was that actually uh, it's possibly one of the only songs where um, I actually overdubbed two guitars in different tunings. So the initial rhythm guitar track was an open E, and then I added um, a second guitar track actually in standard tuning, um, playing you know different voicings of the chords. Um, and then as far as the solo section, that was kind of the same thing. That was another one where, um, you know, I generally, by the time we're in the studio with this stuff, I have a, I hear most of the solo in my head. So it's probably about 60%. I kind of already know what I want to play or what I hear for the song. Um, and then the rest of it is kind of ad-libbed around it to sort of fit the pieces together and make the most sense of it. And um, this was one where I felt, that I needed to do both regular um, regular kind of bending blues licks in conjunction with slide licks. I, I really heard kind of a mix of both. Um, and if you've seen us live, you see that I, I play with the slide on my pinky finger. So this was one where basically the whole, the whole recording process, I was kind of utilizing that technique um, specifically for the solo section as well. And you can kind of hear some slide guitar kind of drifting in and out of the whole song basically um there's either little licks filling in the gaps or sort of the you know barring chords to add uh that extra layer of stuff into the into the choruses or whatever it is um and it's always a fun texture it's always fun to add that extra layer of the kind of full chords sliding around um the guitar neck yeah uh, and then the solo just like, like hits such a spot at the end of it that's like you know has all that energy really captures all that you know stuff that we do live in a really cool way. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was a great solo. That's like one of your best solos on the record, and it's so. made for a solo, you know. And then uh, the section after that, we sort of have our you know normal David Bowie "Let's Dance." build bridge section which i don't think we've ever done before in that way and we've always known how to do those things and i think this is like possibly the highest robert's ever sang on record and he kind of fucked himself because then he had to learn how to sing it live every night and he did it in the studio and sort of thrashed himself up and and it sounds great on the recording uh and then he had to learn how to do it every single day on like a european tour how was how was that uh, I mean, I think there's 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 different ways to process it when we're doing it live 13 days in a row, um, where you you know it's coming, so you're you're thinking about it when the song starts and the first you're singing the first verse, you know, trying to not think about the first verse or the first chorus. You're thinking about making sure that your airways are are built and ready for that bridge, because you know that's going to be the the pivotal point in the song where you have to be thinking about it you know what so it's you have to be breathing properly the whole song not just like right before the bridge or you have to make sure that you come out of that last you know that second chorus and you know during the solo i'm 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 breathing and making sure that i am ready for what's coming not like you know thinking about it the line before which obviously comes with doing this multiple years in a row and and other songs that are 
you know, maybe I sing a lot lower, but I had to, you know, it, it's a learning process forever that I'll always be learning and, and finding new tricks that, that you guys have showed me and, and other, other things that, that I find more when we're playing live and more how to set up my mental and breathing in like going forward, you know, um, like things that I'll, things that I'll do and learn, you know, the, the third night that we play the song and be like, Oh, mm. that's where I need to, that's where I need to like take that, take that second and, and readjust and stuff like that. So I'm still learning every day and every show we play, um, in everything we do. Yeah. I feel like, um, part of it, you know, I mean, it, it's being ready for what's coming and not, not thinking about it right before thinking about it when you start that song. I and, feel you know, like and, that and, is, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I feel like that's totally like something that happens for everyone as we go on tour. Because we just recorded all these songs. We didn't necessarily do it in succession, or maybe the rhythm section did, but it's kind of easier to do it to a click in the studio and you kind of get in the vibe. And we might not touch it for like another, like, we haven't touched some of those Shine a Light songs since we recorded them. So it's going to be a whole new learning process, like getting them under the fingers, getting them in the voice again. Um, and then, uh, obviously, the two huge compliments on top of this song are the background singers and the horn players. Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, five of four horns and uh, Mahalia Barnes and Juanita Tippins and Prinny Stevens just knocked it out of the park. We, uh, yeah, I don't tend to give them very much uh, direction when when I send them stuff. Um, I I'm a big fan of hiring the right people and letting them do what they do best and trying to just stay out of the way as much as possible. Um, you know, as I've run into situations before where, you know, if I tell a drummer how to, you know, what I want on drums as a keyboard player, it'll just end up sounding like, <laughs> like a keyboard drum track or, you know, like horns. Like, it, you know, every, everybody's different, but I, I just like to, let people kind of do what they do and then help fine tune that or go into notes from there. And honestly, for, for both the, the, the girls and the horns, like, I, I don't think we, I think we had maybe like one or two notes for the entire record, you know, mm -hmm. and that, and that's for this record and last light on the highway. It was like, Hey, like, can you, you know, toss in just like a solo, on this one, we don't know if we're going to keep it with a guitar solo, but like a sax solo might be cool. Or like, hey, let's have a, a couple more pads here or there, you know, just just to be safe and we can mute it out later if we don't need it. Um, but yeah, they, they were great. We, we sent them all the tunes and that they were going to be on. And, and uh, that was that was pretty much it. They just knocked it out of the park. And th this record, too, like we had for the background vocals specifically, like I had kind of cut some some demos and stuff of, of what we're doing live so that they what the band's doing on the record, because that's also an interesting thing. Like we're writing background vocals for us and for what we're planning on doing live. And so for the girls, it's, you know, they have kind of two options of, of ways to go. They can either add to that um, and join us on what we're singing as far as background vocals, or they can add a different element that, you know, works in conjunction with what we're doing. So like if we if we're doing direct harmonies and, you know, singing lyrics and stuff, if they're doing like an ooh or an ah over the top or any sort of vocal padding, um, that's one way to go about doing it. And they're just so like great at finding the perfect thing to do um and yeah I, I think we maybe had like a note for most of this stuff and they just knocked it out of the park every time same thing with the horns so yeah thank you mahalia juanita and pretty jason and ian <laughs> and there's another thing on this track too which is pretty much going to be the same for the rest of these but since this is the first one um because what I hear on this on this track that I just love is is the key arrangements when it comes to the piano uh, and the organ, and you kind of have your process when it comes to this um, about how you go about you know doing the live tracking and then and then what you do after that. Do you want to get yeah. into kind of how 
how that works? Yeah, um, for keys, I I like to track live with the band whatever the main instrument's going to be. So depending on the song, you know, I'm I'm pretty much keeping to piano, Wurlitzer, and organ. Um, and for this one, I wanted to have that rock and roll piano thing. That's that's definitely the main uh, keyboard part, and that's the one that I play live. Um, so that's what that's what I tracked. All the piano is just my Nord on this record. Um, and then I went in and did uh, B3 at uh, Dallas Cruz, uh, his studio, Zion Studios in, in Santa Ana. And we knocked it out, I think, in like two and a half hours for the whole record, doing B3 stuff. And um, it's, it's great. It's, you know, a lot of it's just kind of stay out of the way. And, uh, you know, where's your ear going? What's the, who's taking lead at any given point? And then finding the holes to, you know, fill it out a little bit more. So um, this is a very, you know, kind of guitar-y song. Most of the, the songs that we do with this band, you know, are, are mainly guitar-based and featured. Um, and But there, this one was fun because there's, there's a few little holes where the piano kind of jumps out at you. And, and there was some room for me to do some stuff. And it's just fast, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis-type um, piano stuff. And then the organ is just jumping in over the top kind of blending with the horns and everything and and uh, yeah it was fun yeah and then one more piece that we don't usually talk about that much is and we'll probably talk about it more but uh we have acoustic guitar on some of these songs so there's acoustic going through this is probably yes. the most dense track on the entire record mm-hmm. it has the most amount of things going on so there's acoustic guitar acting as sort of like a tambourine or something in the high end. And I think there's a lot of percussion on it, too. Not a lot, but like maybe some tambourine in the background uh, on this song. And yeah, this is the most dense track with the most horns and background singers and tons of guitars. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like it sounds like, you know, overcrowded at all. I feel like everything's doing its job and mm-hmm. it sounds really full and, you know... There's never a moment of this song where I, I feel like it it lulls or anything. So, yeah, and it yeah and it comes and it comes with a really fun music video that we had a lot of fun <laughs> putting together. Probably that's one of its the most own fun music videos that we've gotten to do. Uh, that's its own podcast. I think we already talked yeah. about it basically too. So mm-hmm. go back and listen to whatever podcast that is. Steve will probably find the number. Um, Mika asked, "Have we ever played this live with a horn section?" And the answer is only on that music video. <laughs> Uh, and they actually learn the parts and stuff like that, and we're playing along, but we have not yet played this live at the horn section. We want to. We might do it at the Wayfarer, which sounds like it'd be fun, but uh, um, we have not yet. We have not done a lot of these with a background singer yet either. We played one show during COVID with a background singer, and it was rad, and then that background singer moved to... Uh, San Antonio, Texas, to go <laughs> be a professional singer for SeaWorld. So she's living out her dreams over there, which is just bad for us because, uh, <laughs> you know, she was killing it. So, And if you want to hear more about the uh, the music video shoot, it's on the pod- Rec Podcast episode number 98. I know we talked about it for, for quite, quite a while on that one, which is fun. Uh. Yeah, I think this one's going to go a little long because we're just introducing all the things again of like what the process was, and we might just reference this. So, uh, yeah, that's. I'm excited to talk about this record and what it took to make this record because it, it was all in the middle of COVID and it was all kind of weird and uh, yeah, there's a lot going on and working through it all came with its own challenges and everyone's sort of ups and downs and uh yeah there's a lot we're going to talk about with this that is uh going to be great and i think uh it's a really great record and i feel like if you haven't listened to it all and you were just listening to the singles or something go listen to the whole record again because it's really good there's a lot of great stuff on there and we'll be talking about it into the future here yeah so what do we got coming up we have uh, the Wayfarer coming up on mm, April April sixteenth. April sixteenth. We have the cruise, the Joe Bonamassa cruise coming up before that in February. 
We're, uh, I don't know what we've announced or not. Uh, we have some more Orange County stuff coming up. We have some more California stuff coming up in March and April. So keep yeah. your eyes peeled for that. I don't want to announce something before and piss Warren off because <laughs> take off. But, uh, uh, yeah. And then thank you everyone for coming to the mint and to Winston's. Cause that was yeah. a very fun, awesome show. Yeah. Had a great time. Make sure to click all the links in the description below for all y'all listening on the Spotify podcast and the Apple podcast apps and uh, be good to each other out there and get wrecked. <laughs> <laughs>